0: My name is Nicola, and you're watching Singularity FM, the place where we interview the future. If you guys enjoy this podcast, you can show appreciation by writing a review on iTunes or visiting interviewthefuture.com and becoming a patron. My goal with this podcast has always been to be a bit of a gadfly to your, as well as my, intellectual growth, and hopefully a midwife to your best ideas rather than a disseminator of a specific movement or ideology. Thus, while I've never hidden my personal views, I don't try to convert or make you a believer and follower, but simply to provide important and helpful people and ideas up for your consideration. Then what you do, or if you do anything with those, is of course entirely up to you. With that said, my guest today is Emil Torres. Emile is a philosopher and historian whose work focuses on existential threats to civilization and humanity. They have published on a wide range of topics, including machine superintelligence, emerging technologies, and religious eschatology, as well as the history and ethics of human extinction. Their forthcoming book is Human Extinction, a history of the science and ethics of annihilation. An interesting side fact, maybe the fact that Torres has pledged to give away everything that he makes or they make over $35,000 a year. And in a previous life, they were a musician and audio engineer who sold a bunch of songs to MTV. I found, uh, I, I generally find personal deta- details like that highly illuminating. That's why I generally tend to lock on them and, and want to share them. So, anyway, without further ado, Welcome to Singularity FM, Emil. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Fantastic. So, Emil, can you please introduce yourself in your own words? Uh, let's say we meet each other at a conference somewhere where you're presenting, and we're at the bar or in the hall somewhere, and you have like one sentence or less to say who Emil Torres is. Who is Emil? <laughs> well, I would say. Fundamentally,
1: the thematic strand that unifies pretty much everything I've done over the past um, intellectually over the past uh, fifteen years is eschatology, and that l- literally means the the study of last things. Uh, so you know this would include uh, perspectives on the future that are based on science and uh, and evidence, but also uh, know, visions of the future of humanity that arise from religious uh, worldviews. So it's sort of, my focus is is broad within this particular domain of eschatology, the religious, the secular, and the
0: scientific. Wow, and that's a big scary word for a lot of people. It's kind of close and it reminds me to another word that I tend to use uh, sometimes on my podcast, usually as a criticism, It is an Aristotelian word, and it's teleology. So maybe you can kind of compare and contrast eschatology and teleology. Because again, to me, where I'm coming from, I often use teleology as a dirty word, almost. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Uh, It's a great question. I mean, there is a connection. Uh, Many eschatological narratives are teleological in nature, right? So, you know, although the Christian view, you know one uh particularly influential uh interpretation of prophetic scripture at least since the 1970s in the US uh is that in the at some point in the relative near future Jesus will emerge from the clouds he will rapture up all of the uh believers who exist uh at, at the time and then also resurrect everybody who uh has journeyed from the the cradle to the grave since about 70 80 AD, AD. Uh, which is when the second temple was uh, destroyed. And that'll be followed by the Antichrist rising to power. Uh, The battle of Armageddon will occur seven years after that. And then there's this millennial, uh, a thousand year period during which uh, God will reign. Satan will reemerge from the abyss. There'll be a final grand battle, not between Christ and the Antichrist, but this time between God and Satan. And then the forces of evil will be forever vanquished and eternity begins. So all of that is to say the ultimate telos, the ultimate end towards which uh, world history is, uh, is culminating is this, you know, this cosmic battle between good and evil in which good ultimately wins. Um, There's also interesting. So so, there's a kind of scientific interpretation of teleology as well. Which comes from a field of cosmology called physical eschatology, and this was really founded in 1969 by a guy named Lord Martin Rees, who may have come up in past conversations because he's also a futurist. has written about existential threats to. to I've humanity. done an
0: interview with him. Yeah, over, ah, about fantastic. two hours. Yeah, yeah, wonderful. So, yeah,
1: he basically founded this field of physical eschatology. Then it, it uh, evolved in throughout the 1970s and basically it was the scientific study of the future evolution of the cosmos mm-hmm. and the standard view today is that because of the second law of thermodynamics according to which more or less entropy is increasing within this isolated system that is the universe as a whole and eventually will reach a state of thermodynamic equilibrium so there's also a kind of teleological uh aspect to that sometimes the the, the related Term, kind of a, a little riff on teleology, is disteleology. So it's this, you know, the point being that the universe is sort of driving, uh, has a d- history, cosmic history has a directionality. And we're moving towards this future state in which ultimately we, the entire universe will just sink into this frozen pond of maximal entropy. All life will be impossible. Uh, no more humans, and so on. So d- teleology, um, in, in many ways, has been influential. This sort of teleological thinking has been influential uh, within this field of eschatology, which for most of history was a branch of theology. You know, it's just an aspect of the religious worldview. It's, not, it's the religious worldview pivoting towards the future. And then really in the, the second half of the 20th century, it acquired a kind of scientific basis as well
0: yeah and maybe the origins of it were sort of proto scientific if we can call aristotle to be a proto scientist of a, of a kind um and and he gives a, a slightly perhaps the way i understand him uh kind of uh contingent uh meaning to to what you describe uh, not excluding what all of what you just said, but also he talks about kind of the ultimate fulfillment or of the ultimate purpose to things. So, for example, the telos of a knife is a knife is for cutting. So the ultimate purpose of a knife is to cut, as he said. And mm-hmm. so you have therefore good knives that can fulfill their ultimate purpose. They're sharp. They're strong. They can cut. And you have bed knives which are unable to fulfill their purpose because they're dull or they break, and so on. And so that's that's kind of uh, where teleology originates, the way I understand it. It's a, a Aristotelian concept which was later on adapted by the church, mm-hmm. um, and eventually, again, as you as you said, maybe in the sixties, filtered back in through kind of proto scientific or scientific or neo scientific kind of realms. Now, so what do you think of the uh, following narrative? The the universe was born without consciousness and intelligence. Eventually, it gave birth to consciousness, uh, or uh, it, it gave birth to life first. Then that life eventually became both conscious and intelligent life. Then this conscious intelligence gave birth to uh, machine intelligence, then this machine intelligence started disseminating itself throughout the universe. Then we have a little period of, you know, Matryoshka brains and Dyson spheres and, you know, giant computroniums. And finally, as Kurzweil says, quote, the universe wakes up. So there is no longer any damn matter left anywhere in the universe because all of the matter has been converted uh, to its ultimate purpose, which is to say, to become smart. Uh, And so the universe is no longer a dumb universe as it started, but it is now a smart universe. So is that a teleological, eschatological kind of a story, or is it not? And should that be a form of a criticism, maybe even a put down as I tend to use it, or is it? Is that an unfair attack, in your view? So I think there are two ways to interpret that. Um, on the one hand,
1: one might claim that there is a sort of natural or built-in tendency within the universe towards this future, in which, as you as you say, quoting uh, Kurzweil, the universe wakes up, um, and you know maybe there, you know, Kurzweil himself is is uh, inclined to give these kinds of um, nomological, we would say, in, uh, in the field of philosophy, basically just a law-based um, generalizations, like his law of accelerating returns. Um, and, he, so, and he said on many occasions that this future is inevitable. So that seems to suggest that, yeah, there's something about the universe itself that just naturally tends towards this future in which these biological uh, intelligences create these artificial intelligences, then they, you know, spread in all directions, maybe at, you know, a a large fraction of the speed of light, um, you know, via von Neumann, uh, von Neumann, um, the probes, self-replicating and so on. So that's one interpretation. Another is just like, it could be like a normative worldview. And so the claim there, it's it's not a descriptive claim about the way the universe naturally is, but it's a a normative claim about the way the universe ought to be. And so, you know, even if it's even if there's no natural tendency for the universe to ultimately wake up uh, again, as Kurzweil says, we ought to take actions, you know, to ensure that this future uh, comes to pass. So, yeah, I mean, I think in the first sense, um, it's just not, I don't think there's really good, a good argument for why th- that is, you know, the inevitable. This this future of you know machine intelligence is spread throughout our future light cone, is inevitable. Uh,
0: that word "inevitable" really, really messes up with me. Like, uh-huh. and me, and that's kind of a new phenomenon. You know, I started off a little bit like a singularity fanboy. Um, I met Kurtzwell, I interviewed him over 10 years ago, great guy, personally fantastic Um, As a person, as an individual, highly respect him, enjoyed my time with him He's very hospitable, very humble kind of guy, like really impressed me in all kinds of way From a personal standpoint of view Mm -hmm. Um, But that word inevitable in the last decade or so has really bothered me and and in a way, teleology is kind of a synonym of inevitability in my book. And that's why for me, it's a dirty word because it kind of from, maybe it's my philosophical background that really bothers me and, and kind of makes us like passive observers or makes us, you know, irresponsible, uh, not responsible and makes us uh, kind of non impactful in any way on the way of anything right it's like highly deterministic kind of a universe that we live in if that's the case and we have we're in for the ride we we have no say one way or another and to me whether from ethical or even from purely scientific cause and effect kind of um uh, point of view i struggle to embrace that point of view yeah i i i, I think that's really interesting and
1: um i sort of share your uh you know being a bit f- frustrated or perplexed uh uh or whatever with that with this notion of inevitability i mean there clearly is uh th- there clearly are kinds of inevitability in the universe so like you know we mentioned a moment ago this dis- this dist- teleological uh future state of thermodynamic a- equilibrium and so far as we know that is the inevitable outcome of the universe and there's just nothing we can do <laughs> to prevent that i don't know maybe there's some like wildly advanced technologies that would appear to us as magic that we could invent to somehow um, it's somehow I don't know yeah contravene the, the second law uh, but yeah I, I also I, I find this this notion of I mean Kurzweil's idea that this is inevitable and um, and that the uh, push towards this sort of future is being uh Driven by the law of accelerating returns uh is what leads him to i think some like pretty odd predictions about the future, like the singularity is going to happen in in twenty forty five you know it's like a very specific day and a very specific date and yeah it's it starts to his his particular sort of eschatological singularitarian eschatological uh system starts to look a bit like religion to me uh including like these specific d- dates about when you know history rupturing events are bound to happen so yeah all of it it it's something seems a bit off about it
0: on the other hand people would say that the latest events and developments around gpt4 and stuff are all proof of his genius and his kind of prophetic futurism uh alongside his projected timeline of development which many people say uh has been true and is uh consistently re kind of affirming that it's true over and over again in time um yeah um i mean i i don't have particular
1: examples um, off the top of my head. But I know that some people have looked at some of his um, predictions and found like, I, I don't know, he, he seems to have been somewhat right about certain things, but also my understanding, so correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is that also a fair number of his predictions have been have been wrong. Um, and then with respect to, you know, GPT-4 in particular, like it's just not... That clear to me that you know, obviously there was this paper published uh, just recently about sparks of AGI yeah uh, yeah um, being uh, visible within this this sort of Gpt four system but that also I, I'm very skeptical of that and you know to to me one of the the most amazing things about GPT four and chat GPT based on the Gpt three uh, point five large language model that they have is that I really feel like the the most impressive thing about that system is its ability to kind of trick us into thinking that it's doing something like thinking. <laughs> I haven't seen much good evidence that it's it's actually sort of reasoning. Um, and obviously, uh, maybe people who are listening to this like understand basically how the systems work. And it's you know it's some computer scientists have described them as I
0: have as, a very as, large number of my audience who are amazing deep experts in all those fields working. <laughs> Discussing, yeah. uh, so so yeah, many of those people would surely know exactly how it works or how it was designed, at least. Yeah,
1: so yeah, I don't know. I'm I'm, I'm not. Yeah, we'll we'll see. I guess, but it's it's not obvious to me at the moment that GPT four is like really is closer to AGI, <laughs> um, or you know is this little stepping stone that.
0: You know,
1: like, I know, Elias, Kelsey, for example, is worried that, you know, GPT-6 or something.
0: We're all is, going to die soon.
1: We're all going to die because that's going to be AGI. It's going to recursively self-improve. Yeah. And so on.
0: yeah. So. I myself don't see it that way at all. I don't see it as an AGI example at all. I don't see it as even closer to AGI. Um, I think it's highly premature to call GPT-4, like, anything, like, you know, close to being a... a uh, an AGI. On the other hand, I was re-watching and rereading Dune recently. And, and I remember that uh, at some point they say there that uh, once, when you've lived with prophecy all your life, the moment of revelation is a shock. Mm-hmm. So, so you you've talked about the coming of the Messiah all of your life for generations, maybe. And then one day you see the Messiah, and of course, most people would be in denial Mm -hmm. simply because it's too much to process. It's too overwhelming. It's too, like you cannot allow that as a possibility even, right? Because it's still in the the realm of kind of like, it's in a different realm. and, And once it becomes the present, most people would not naturally go in denial. So I'm... I'm fully aware that I may be totally and completely wrong here. That's all I'm trying to say. So anyway, we kind of sidetracked a little bit, but I think it's an interesting sidetrack and maybe kind of illuminating a little bit or relevant to our further discussion. So let me backtrack just a little bit here and ask you, going back to the topic of existential risk, can you share with us how and why you decided to study the topic of existential risk?
1: Yeah, well, I think it ties into uh, many of the topics that we've already uh, touched on. Um, I, I I think that existential risk had a, a natural appeal to me because, like so many other people in the United States, I was raised in a pretty religious household. And yeah, there was a, a fair amount of talk about the rapture. Uh, so the rapture is associated with this particular interpretation of scripture, which is which I had alluded to this before, it became wildly popular after uh during the 1970s, and now is is like this you know very influential uh understanding of what prophetic scripture uh says. But this was this this framework is called dispensationalism. And it was basically invented in the latter 19th century. So before that, there was no talk of the rapture. Like the, the idea of the rapture uh was introduced along with this dispensationalist framework. And, yeah, so I grew up, you know, in, anticipating the end of the world at any moment. Um, I have vivid memories of this. I, I believe this was around like nine p.m. on whatever the exact day was. Uh, that it that the um, presidential election was called for Bill Clinton, and I remember being just just gripped and consumed by anxiety as a as a young very young person, because everybody in my community thought he was the Antichrist. So it was like, wow. oh my God, like it's really happening. I mean, it's sort of, it, it gestures exactly what you were saying. Like for generations, you know, for, for millennia, people have talked about, you know, the, the end of the world uh, being imminent. Here it is, it's actually happening. And it was, it's, you know, yeah, it, it was really, um, there's a kind of trauma.
0: Can you, you tell S- me what community trauma. was that specifically? Is that Presbyterian, uh, Baptist Presbyterian, or was it Catholic? What is it? not Presbyterian. So it was, it was Baptist. Okay. Just Baptist. Okay. Yeah.
1: So dispensationalism uh, is embraced by people in different uh, denominations, but, but it's very popular among Baptists. Mm
0: -hmm. Um,
1: So the Baptists are sort of more extreme fundamentalist evangelical uh, Christians. So, yeah. So I don't know that sort of like (laughs) growing up in this environment instilled a kind of interest in uh, the, you know, the future of humanity, which also, I, I think this topic of what the future, you know, the, in future studies, they they talk about the space of, they talk about the three Ps. So possible, probable, and preferable futures. So sort of, I, I also think that, that that those issues have a sort of natural, um, an intrinsic, um, are intrinsically interesting. so So that also sort of, that fact drew me to this topic as well. And then it was really in like the uh, mid-2000s that I read Ray Kurzweil's book, Singularity is Near, uh, published in 2005. And around the same time, came across uh, Nick Bostrom's papers on existential risk. And so, you know, there was sort of this like, you know, eschatology-shaped hole left behind when I apostatized my religion. And suddenly then there was what appeared to be a scientific, rational, kind of evidence-based um, approach to thinking about you know, the, the future of humanity, to, to thinking about the possibility of apocalyptic events happening in the future. These would be secular apocalyptic events. Uh, and so, yeah, I, it, pretty much immediately, I was really taken by the topic and got very interested, initially was was super critical of the transhumanist uh, worldview. Some of that was actually stemmed from Kurzweil's insistence that this is inevitable. And I kept thinking like, what if we don't want it though? What if that's not the future that is actually best? Um, Are there ways that we can somehow put the brakes on technology? uh, you know, maybe, uh, prevent this, you know, his vision of the complete merging of biology and technology, you know, organism and art artifact. Um, cause perhaps that, yeah, that's, maybe that's not the best future. And so initially, like in the early 2000s, I've, I've mentioned this on many occasions, I was really most sympathetic with what is called anarcho- anarcho-primitivism. And it's this sort of, some anarcho-primitivists, uh, um, you know, like to mention the slogan of back to the Pleistocene, which is a bit silly because, you know, the Pleistocene's gone. We're in the Holocene now, maybe the Anthropocene at this point. But, you know, it was was this wanting to, this desire to sort of return to nature, like maybe that's where the most meaningful life uh, can be fostered. And so that that was my initial perspective. And then I read a book by Langdon Winner. Published in 1977 called uh, Autonomous Technology. And he was discussing this thesis, which is very relevant to the notion of inevitability, which is that technology at some at some level of development becomes uncontrollable. And so it's it's sort of the the, the analogy that I've used is you could think of technological development or technologization as the movement of a murmuration of starlings evening in the evening. You know, so that's just the flock of starlings. They they move about in all sorts of different directions. The the uh, shape and direction of the murmuration depends on the individual actions of all of the the, the birds uh, that comprise the, the the murmuration. But at the same time, there's no bird or collection of birds that's in charge of the direction. So maybe like technology is sort of like that. And yeah, obviously, if everybody around the world were to stop it. Inventing technology or engaging in science, then this uh, this enterprise maybe you could come to a screeching halt. But that's just not going to happen. Um, and so that so for a while, I became convinced that this a future at least somewhat resembling what Kurzweil uh, prognosticates is maybe inevitable. It's ineluctable it's unavoidable and then I thought well if if we can't stop this juggernaut of technology and science, then maybe the best thing to do is to join that team and to you know hopefully like maybe modify in some way the trajectory of civilizational development over time and you know in in a uh, in a direction that you know I after careful reflection think is most optimal. Mm -hmm. So so for a while then, I really, really did consider myself to be
0: like a transhumanist. Mm -hmm. Um, Same with me. And by the way, you have a very common path coming from a kind of a very religious background. Uh, Many people in the transhumanist community come that way. And even in the non-transhumanist community, even people like take Michael Shermer, who is like the skeptic guy, He studied theology, he came from a very religious background And now he's kind of the skeptic guy So it's, I think it's good to be aware of where we're coming from one way or another Uh, And because, you know, we all need to watch out for our own biases Uh, And, and, you know, I come at kind of from myself from a kind of a half and half kind of a background Uh, Half of my family on my father's side were communists and they were staunch anti-religious people. They made fun of everything religious and any kind of, you know, symbol or language or, you know, fetish, uh, religious fetish and stuff like that. And on the other hand, on my mother's side, uh, we had Orthodox Christianity seriously embraced by her mom, especially. And of course, those two kind of came into the family and created considerable amount of friction, uh, you know, communism, anti-communism, you know, Christianity and atheism, so I'm kind of like, but but being aware of all of our biases and our histories uh, should help us ideally beware our own biases and our own blind spots and, and hopefully make us better for it. I think that's why I ask those questions because uh they they are probably illuminating I, I do think it's also worth noting that so on the one hand
1: you know there there are lots of things that people don't like in the world uh and one way to abuse those things they don't like is to use the the term religion uh to describe uh those those various phenomena and so yeah, religion can be a, a term of abuse. So it, it's sort of facile and maybe kind of uh, unfair, I think, in many cases, to describe things as religion. But I think in the case of transhumanism, there is a really interesting connection. Um, I mean, the, the idea was was uh, as as I'm sure you know, and maybe many listeners know. Um, so apologies if I'm saying something that's that's uh, obvious. Um, but I mean, th- this idea was like really developed in, you know, going back to the early 20th century um, by Julian Huxley, but, but, as well as various others, J.B.S. Haldane and uh, J.D. Bernal uh, as well. But, you know, in a 1927 book um, titled Revealingly, Religion Without Revelation, you know, Huxley developed this idea. At the time, he called it um, evolutionary humanism, if I remember correctly. But the idea was, was basically the same. You know, we take control of our evolutionary um, trajectory. And, you know, we, we, through the, you know, methods, the methods he chose identified at the time were the methods of eugenics, you know, sort of selective breeding and and things of that sort to take control of our evolutionary trajectory and, you know, shape what the future of humanity is going to look like. Um, but I mean, basically he presented this as, you know, during the 19th century, Christianity just, just collapsed, uh, among the intelligentsia, you know, and immediately, (laughs) You know, really, at the end of the 19th century, you see all of these examples of of atheists who are just absolutely fretting about the vacuum left behind.
0: Like the there is actually yeah. a very huge influence, even before Huxley, religious influence that is to say, from Russian cosmism, yeah, uh, which is a kind of a mixture between Orthodox Christianity and paganism. Um, it's a kind of a strange concoction. Just like, I mean, many of Christianity's rituals are kind of adapted paganistic rituals, uh, localized to the specific culture or geography or what have you. So so Russian cosmism, which had huge impact on, uh, you know, th- the modern transhumanist movement in general, uh, had huge, undeniably huge religious, uh, at least Um, Sort of a metaphysical origin If you will Mm -hmm. Uh, Not only that but You know I I had a a bit of a Small friendly argument yesterday With David Wood uh, On Facebook And as usual uh, Chatting on Facebook Messenger Is the worst way to discuss or debate Or hash out any such disagreements So he pointed me towards uh, an article he wrote 7 or 8 years ago about some of the misconceptions about transhumanism and one of them was the 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 very commonly lobbed uh, claim that it is eugenics and he he goes very briefly to say oh it's it's got nothing to do with eugenics and it's kind of like saying oh because hitler was vegetarian vegetarianism is bad and and you know my argu- my and i was not able to address those claims yesterday with him. But my response to that is twofold. So first of all, factual, factually, it's it's wrong, and it's, it's a myth that Hitler was vegetarian. He was not. So that's a myth created by Goebbels and Nazi propaganda because in the 1930s, the New York Times was creating a profile for Hitler, and they were trying to position Hitler as, as a peaceful man, a man of peace, despite my Kampf and all of his writings. And Goebbels thought, well, who is a worldly peace, commonly accepted symbol of peace in the world? Of course, Gandhi. Oh, what is one unique feature of Gandhi? Well, he's a, a vegetarian, maybe even vegan, actually, to be a better word for him. But anyway, why don't we... Say and kind of try to equate Hitler with Gandhi by saying, "Look, Hitler is a man of peace. He's a he's a vegetarian, of course." And so the 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 the, the background claim for that uh, only comes from one article written by the New York Times in the nineteen thirties, and it is factually wrong because there's tons of evidence that first uh, Hitler was prescribed vegetarian menu because he had problems with gas and stuff like that. And secondly, one of his favorite foods was a specific kind of German sausage. You're maybe more familiar with the types of German sausages you can get. And I think that one had some, one of the major ingredients was doves or something like that. I forget the name. Anyway, so that's a small factual mistake, but the bigger issue is this. Okay, so to disprove the claim that Transhumanism has nothing to do with eugenics. We have to remove any overlap between the people in transhumanism and people in eugenics and their methodologies and kind of common tropes or memes, if you will. So first, let's look at the people. I mean, like Julian Huxley, you mentioned already, right? He was a very notable eugenist especially at the peak of eugenics around the 1930s. He was kind of a little bit obnoxious about it to the point where his brother one day got so pissed off that decided to write the book with whom with which to kind of once, uh, in, in a way, poke at his own brother, as brothers tend to do, and in a way, generally dismiss the whole eugenics thing. And of course, now we know that book is called A Brave New World. And that was Aldous Huxley, right? And we know that Julian Huxley was a notable eugenist. Not only that, but he was the head of the British Eugenics Association or organization, the I fighting. forget the name, right? For a number of years. So first of all, clearly, and by the way, Julian Huxley coined the term transhumanism. So after that article or book that you were mentioning, so clearly at the very least, the person who coined, trans- coined transhumanism as a term is a eugenicist, that's a fact. So now let's look at the kind of other overlaps, if there are any, like what are the major concerns about the eugenists and what are the major concerns of some major transhumanists? Well, obsession with kind of, what is it? The, the birth rate and the, intelli- the, the IQ rate and especially the, the connection between race, birth rates and IQ. Right, and how we can manipulate those to the best possible outcome to fulfill some kind of an apparent, allegedly, fulfillment, teleological, eschatological end goal, (laughs) if you will, right? And so, when you put all those things together, at the very least, you have to admit that historically it's the same people and many of the same kind of methods and you know maybe that's insufficient but it's at least you know enough to 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 make you dig deeper and sort of decide for yourself i i think later on and, and i think as far as i'm concerned um there those are undeniable and there's at least a very huge influence of one over the other um and there's more we can talk about that uh, do you want to add anything here? Or- yeah, sure. Yeah, so I, I would uh, first of all just
1: say that interestingly, this is not very well known. So it's it's widely reported that Huxley coined the term, but re- but actually the term was coined a little bit earlier. So it's it's a super minor issue, but I mean I was surprised to to discover this. There's a really good paper. I'm forgetting what it's it's called. That uh, it was published uh, several years ago. And I came across that, and I was really surprised. Without a doubt, though, Huxley popularized the term, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it was it was in his uh, 19, um, was it 1957, I think? Yeah, it's in, in the, the 50s, the book. Long.
0: I actually have the page, but but so maybe he took it from somebody else and I've forgotten or wasn't even aware of it. So please, please correct me. Yeah, no, it's, uh, so yeah,
1: I mean, just a, a super minor issue about that, uh, which, yeah, I was unaware of until recently, that being said so who who was it who was it
0: who coined it,
1: do it you was, remember the name that comes to mind is lightfoot but i might be wrong about that um so i'd be happy to send you a link to the paper if you okay. want to put it under the you know the youtube yeah uh,
0: sure sure i yeah
1: um so that being said um yeah without a doubt i mean he do i i feel like it's useful to distinguish between methods and aims, and so you have like the first wave uh, eugenics movement. So that right. really began with with uh, Francis Galton, you know, with his um, eighteen sixty three I think it was book Hereditary Genius, um, and that continues really all the way up until like nineteen fifties nineteen sixties I think is when eugenics really came under uh, a lot of criticism. Uh, in the West, because, you, you know, a lot of people don't understand, like, eugenics was, was widely uh, embraced by people on both sides of the political spectrum. So, yeah, it was, yeah. yeah, it was understood as, like, very integral to progressive social policy, for example. And a lot of the this forced sterilization programs in the U.S. were implemented during the progressive era. Even you know, in, in the 20s, 30s, then. I think, like, pre-war, maybe. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, really, 1920s, I think it was in the U.S., uh, 1910s, especially 1920s, that eugenics really hit its its peak. Yes. And so during this first wave, the, the aim was to prevent de- degeneration. Uh, there were a lot of worries back then about the following the publication of Darwin's book uh, Origin Species, 1859. A lot of worry about evolutionary degeneration. It was really widespread. H.G. Wells's um, 1895 uh, book uh, The Time Machine was a story of degeneration. You know, yeah. Humanity degenerates. Exactly degeneration. right. Yeah, and and he was borrowing from this other guy, Lancaster, who was, you know, like a like a close friend of his uh who wrote a whole book called uh degeneration, like the, you know another chapter in, in Darwinism or something like that. Anyways, so that was one uh aim of first wave eugenics. We need to prevent degeneration. And then but, also But I, I want to
0: put it in the in the full term because it's not just degeneration, it's racial degeneration. And I think that takes it a step more clear. <laughs> yeah. So
1: there absolutely was a racial aspect
0: of this. And yeah. in fact, one
1: popular theory going back to the 18th century, a popular theory of why different races exist is that humanity originally started as completely white. And then it spread out, we spread out around the, the globe, and then various groups degenerated. And that's why you get various non-white Races, so it was just like a, you know, a deeply horrible view. Of... And you had phrenology, I think, in support of it, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. Anthropometry, study of uh, the, the the measurement of humans, was very much a part of this. I mean, during the Enlightenment, that's when we, you know, our modern notion of race was invented. Then, what is our modern notion of race? It's that you know you can uh, categorize humans into different groups um, based on, uh, mostly based on skin color and then these different groups have certain intrinsic properties intrinsic properties like higher or lower levels of intelligence and so this idea that there are these racial groups with their own you know cluster of properties that differ from other groups this was like invention of the enlightenment before that people would notice differences but this idea of like oh you are a part of this group and based on that i can uh infer certain things about about you about your capabilities about your you know um Yeah, you know, capabilities, things of that sort. So that was really like, yeah, a modern idea that came out of the light. And the implications
0: are political for that. Yeah, yeah, the implications for that are profoundly political because then then the next step from the biology, from the supposedly pure science, the next step is the master race and the slave race. And then the next step from the master race and the slave race is obviously Mein Kampf and the Fuhrer. And, you know, the pure Aryans, all of these are just consequent logical steps, one building upon the previous one. Yeah, yeah. And
1: I mean, it's worth emphasizing that the uh, Nazi eugenics program, which is what most people think of when they think of eugenics, you know, all of those horrendous atrocities, um, that was inspired in many ways by the eugenics programs that were implemented in the US, like in California. You know, were Nazi scientists who studied the California program, were super impressed by it, and thought, okay, we, you know, we need to do our best to replicate that uh, back home in Germany. So, it, it, you know, the, the, really this, this sort of more progressive strain of eugenics is kind of the backbone of first wave eugenics, and then sort of Nazism, uh, and, and the, the particular kind of eugenics, the racial hygiene um, that policies that they uh, um, developed that was just kind of like a little side branch that just grew out of <laughs> eugenics. And so ultimately the, the the point here is the aim was the perfectibility of the human species and the prevention of degeneration. And the methods, so that's the aims on the one hand, the methods were things like selective breeding. And so on the one hand you want to encourage people with so-called desirable traits to reproduce produce more. That's positive eugenics. Negative eugenics is trying to prevent people with with what are were identified as undesirable traits from uh, having children. There's a problem, though. How do you prevent people um, from having kids if you think that they uh, shouldn't, you know, th- that their um, genetic material shouldn't be passed down? To and who the sets the children? criteria? Yeah. So I'll get to that in a moment, for sure. Yes. <laughs> and so basically. With negative eugenics, like this is where the top-down authoritarian state control of um, pop of society level patterns of reproduction uh, become important, and those are really kind of the, the most. I mean, the whole thing is atrocious because of the underlying ableist, sexist, racist, classist assumptions. But negative eugenics in particular was where you get just these the worst atrocities, and that's what sort of like you were saying you got forced sterilization. That's the, the Germans implemented that just like uh, the Californians. Um, beyond that, you've got like, well, why not just, you know, put people in a concentration camp? Well, why not just eliminate people from the... They you know,
0: wiped out people with all kinds of disabilities and or mental or physical disabilities. They wiped them out. Even if they were absolutely. of German uh, background, they simply went to those sanatoriums and they killed them. Yeah, or especially if they're of German... Uh, you know, uh, um, so, so they're soiling yeah, was, the race. It was
1: four hundred thousand were forced sterilized in Germany. Three hundred thousand uh, were murdered, uh, all in the name of racial hygiene and uh, exactly. eugenics. And so, yeah, so you've got these these aims, and then this particular method, you know, which is sort of ba- built around uh, selective breeding. Transhumanism is. Um, so there, there's lots, just, to, just, to, I, I feel like there's, there's a nuanced way of understanding how it's, how it is a, a version of eugenics, how it's just another iteration of the eternal return of eugenics. As some, uh, uh, scholars have put it, I feel like it's a really nice term because this idea of eugenics goes all the way back to Plato. <laughs> um, and so. The Republic, yeah.
0: yeah. People of yeah. gold, silver and lead and whatever bronze.
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so, yeah, with transhumanism, you get a new goal, and people like Huxley thought, well, you know, maybe, um, you know, maybe this goal of just perfecting, of creating the most excellent version of human beings possible, maybe, maybe we should actually aim higher than that, and so maybe if we can use these methods of selective breeding, sterilization, although he, he, uh, I don't believe he was in favor. Of sterilization, although he might have been, Um, I need to 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 go through the mental files for for a moment. But you know, to use these methods of eugenics to to actually transcend humanity, to create this, you know, in the modern uh, phraseology, you know, we would refer to this as post post humanity. You know, the creation of post humanity. Um, And so that was so the original version of transhumanism was basically the the old first wave methods of eugenics with this kind of eugenics on steroids aim. <laughs> you know, forget humanity, forget perfecting the human stock. Let's just create a new post-human stock. <laughs> you know? Um, and then really you get this second so-called second wave of eugenics. And that emerged with the in the 1970s and 1980s, with the development of new technologies like genetic engineering. Genetics, yeah. Yeah. And so for the first time people thought, well, okay, maybe we don't actually need the, this transgenerational policy that tries to, from the top-down, control society-wide patterns of reproduction. Maybe instead we could take these technologies and in a single lifetime or over a single generation, if you're talking about a parent and a, and a, a child, we could use these technologies to radically enhance the, the human species. So, that, so this combined the eugenics on steroids aim of transhumanism with this new methodology, which was supposedly liberal rather than authoritarian, right? So you don't need state intervention. In fact, the state should just get the hell out of the way and let people decide for themselves how they want to uh, to, to actually uh, modify themselves or modify their children. So
0: what's wrong with that then? What What's the problem? I mean, isn't the pursuit of excellence, as Aristotle put it, who was, of course, a student of Plato's uh, and kind of self-improvement and desire for your offspring to be better off than you are? Isn't that like a noble pursuit that we've always tried to to do and we are kind of all striving towards?
1: Yeah, I think there's lots of things to say about this. Um, so on the one hand, you had uh, mentioned earlier that you had mentioned earlier this obsession with IQ and intelligence uh, and things of that sort. Um, that th- those sort of uh, tendencies, which I would describe as discriminatory. Uh, to, well, uh, sorry, I, I I'm, I'm leaving the premise uh, uh, out there. So let me just say, so th- this sort of obsession with IQ and intelligence that is continuous with you know the early first wave uh, eugenics. In fact, IQ was sort of developed in large part by eugenicists who had like super racist views, and you know who thought who like developed this test that enabled them to point to different racial groups and say they are inferior. We in, told in, in you respects. we're better. Yeah. And it's, so it, it justifies all sorts of then social policies. Um, uh, yeah. A more recent uh, example of this is uh, obviously the bell curve, you know, where they're, they're basically arguing against certain social policies because they aren't going to work. Why aren't they going to work? Well, because some groups are just inherently less capable than others. And so, I think some, so bound up with that is kind of uh, a bit of racism, maybe not just a bit. Um, Also, you know, a kind of ableist uh, tendencies. I mean, sexism was was, uh, pervasive in the eugenics movement, same with xenophobia and a certain kind of classism. And I think a lot of those tendencies are ubiquitous within the second wave uh, eugenics movement, transhumanism being a uh the, the most salient instance of second wave eugenics um so okay so these these parents you know want to improve their child well what are the criteria uh according to which they're going to judge their child being better uh or better off than uh you know the child they might have might have had without genetic intervention and i think that's where these these tendencies you know more or less insidiously influence um Uh, you know opinions and so I think that is one reason it's problematic there's also uh, a really great paper by a philosopher named Robert Sparrow Uh, and I think it's it's called something like the new eugenics not so old uh, not so different from the old eugenics Mm -hmm. and he provides just a a number of really compelling arguments at least so far as I can tell for why a liberal regime of second wave eugenics would actually have an outcome that's more or less indistinguishable from what the first wave eugenicists hoped for. Um, Society would homogenize in various ways. So like one example of that would be, you know, he says, imagine that you're a parent in a racist society, uh, perhaps a society exactly like ours. And so you, you understand that you can't do anything to change the way society is, you know, that, that, that's just beyond your control, right? I mean, you can change sort of, you know, your own behavior in society uh, to be a better person and so on. But, you know, the, the systemic racism that is kind of like, in a certain sense, the foundation upon which the edifice of society is built, um, or at least our society as it is today, that you, you can't do anything to change it. So if you, if you want your kid to have the best possible outcome, and you have the, the power to determine uh, what skin tone your child is going to have. There's going to be pressure to, to select for, and maybe maybe it just starts off with some people. Just a, you know maybe most people resist that. Some people though don't, and so as a result, the next generation you have even more white people, you know, and then within that the the uh, oppressive structures of society, those individuals do better. <laughs> you know, they're more like, you know, uh, just it's, a, it's a feedback loop. It's a feedback loop. And, and so it, it doesn't take long for there to be just, you know, incredible pressure for then parents to not be the, the small group of individuals who are saying, I'm going to resist this, but rather to just conform because you don't want to have a kid who's, who's going to be disadvantaged in, soci- in in a racist society. And so his argument ultimately is that you would get sort of naturally this kind of homogenization. And also there's a further point, which is exactly how liberal would this be, <laughs> you know, when there's all of this pressure to select for children who have, you know, a certain, you know, a, assuming that there is some kind of genetic basis for intelligence that uh, is discernible. It's really, really complicated, right? That's a hugely polygenic um, uh, Phenotypic trait, um, whatever intelligence is in the first place. But you know, assuming for the moment that you can select uh, for that sort of thing, then you know, there's also going to be pressure to select for individuals who have a certain kind of ability, you know, uh, an ability to excel cognitively in a kind of capitalistic system where you're expected to work a lot, and you know where. Yeah, so, I mean, and so on and so on. I mean, p- people can fill in uh, the details because I think that part of the argument is fairly straightforward. But ultimately, his claim is that, okay, society's going to homogenize. On top of that, um, how liberal is really the, the situation? I mean, there's, there's a, a kind of appearance of free choice. But ultimately, like, you, you know, Ray Kurzweil says in, in um, The Singularity is near. Uh, he has this this conversation, uh, fictional conversation with Ned Ludd, um, who who gave us the term Luddite, um, and basically Ludd says that he something like you know I I prefer being a biological creature, and Kurzweil says well that's fine you don't have to radically enhance yourself, and he says okay uh, great you know I'll I'll choose not to do that, and then Kurzweil says. But if that's the route you're going to take, you're not going to be around very long to influence the debate. Yeah. You know, in other words, like you know, there's a price just, to be paid. There's a price to be paid, and so I think that that little fictional dialogue um, between Kurzweil and Ned Ludd is really revealing. Uh, it reveals just how sort of illiberal this uh, transhumanist situation would ultimately. B, you know, you either are enhanced or you get left behind. You know, you get you get eliminated. You get marginalized. Um, so yeah, ultimately, it second wave eugenics uh, and transhumanism advertise themselves as being liberal, and they argue that because it's liberal, and you know, it's up to the individuals based on this this right called morphological freedom to decide for themselves whether or not to upgrade. To become post-human. Um, it consequently sidesteps all of the moral awfulness of first wave eugenics, especially negative eugenics. But I think in practice, it would not be uh, liberal at all. And there would be a kind of authoritarianism, it wouldn't be top-down state sanction, state sort of authoritarianism, but it would be an authoritarian authoritarianism of one's predicament. And so, so, yeah, ultimately, I I don't really buy those arguments. And then furthermore, the last point I'll make is just to reiterate that if you actually look at what the second wave eugenicists, right, like the transhumanists, there really is just evidence of classist, racist, kind of xenophobic uh, tendencies all over the place. And so even though a lot of them say, oh, well, we have f- thrown off, you know, we, we've uh, um, we've eliminated a lot of these problematic uh, biases. I think a lot of that's just kind of lip service. and doesn't mean much because if you really look at their obsession with IQ and claims like Bostrom, you know, from his 2002 paper on existential risk that uh, we should be concerned about dysgenic pressures, you know, dysgenic is a word that's just all over the first wave eugenics literature Uh, basically just means that people with undesirable traits are outbreeding their superior peers, you know, he explicitly says we should be concerned about this. And then he says, if you look around the world, you'll find that areas where there is uh, less intellectual um, achievement, those areas tend to have higher fertility rates. And so it just doesn't take much squinting to go like, hmm, that looks like, that looks like kind of a pretty racist
0: claim. Right. Especially if you dig out, or if he digs out, or if he says and kind of apologizes for you know going on the record in in a forum sometime before that and saying i think blacks are stupid and whites are smart or or whatever yeah. he said like whites are inherently smarter by black uh, by blacks by one what is it one order of measurement or i don't know it was like 15 20 points of iq on average i think Yeah, uh, that was the claim anyway and 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 he said that he actually believed that but kind of strategically it was not very smart of him to actually share that position with people so so then you start wondering like can I really believe anything this guy says because maybe he just thinks it's strategically unwise to share what he really thinks from now on yeah. and just wants to, to, to be the most efficient to achieving his goals at whatever cost or you know omissions of ethics or or you know ideology he has to make so that he accomplishes whatever his goals are um so that that to me is a is a huge ethical and philosophical problem with with the major figure in transhumanism um combine that with my own personal impressions that i've had in my few dealings with him over a decade by email i am even more concerned uh but <laughs> let's 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 kind of reshift and refocus going back to the um, existential risks, and then maybe we will loop back to transhumanism towards the end of our discussion. So let's see, first of all, how do we define existential risks? What What is an existential risks and what would be like a, a, a sampling of those in your book, in your view? Yeah. Yeah, good question. Um, So
1: the the term existential risk was introduced by Bostrom in 2002. And his initial definition was, uh, I mean, the the, the standard definition that he gives, uh, which is often quoted, is it's any event that would result in our complete annihilation or a a permanent and drastic curtailment of our of our um, potential for desirable future development, and so really that that could just be shortened. You know, the first disjunct there having to do with annihilation could just be deleted, because I- the reason annihilation would be bad is because it would preclude the uh, us fulfilling our our potential in the future. So then there's the question of well, what our potential means, and in that original paper, he. Spells out our potential in transhumanist terms. So it's, it's big. The, the definition could be translated, I think, to more accurately reflect his thinking uh, as follows. An existential risk is any event that prevent us, permanently prevent us from creating a flourishing post human civilization.
0: Yeah. So and that's, there's another paper here I'm looking at also called Transhumanist Values of mm-hmm. 2003. And he talks here about. The basic conditions for realizing what he refers to as the transhumanist project. Mm-hmm. And so anything that is kind of um in the way of the realization of that transhumanist project is an existential risk. Because exactly. to him, the transhumanist project is kind of the highest good, the highest moral value. Interestingly, not for him personally or individually but for the universe in general it seems mm-hmm. i mean i'm i'm here combining not just that paper but a few other papers like the one on uh astronomical waste i think was the title um where where that's actually a lot more clear uh right so so i'm actually combining a bunch of his papers here it's not just exclusively derived from from that paper but but that's kind of the, the gist of it
1: yeah, that's exactly right. Um, so, yeah, it, it's. It, it, I was going to mention. I mean, that, that astronomical waste paper, which was published one year after the existential risk paper, uh, it did provide a kind of different perspective on what existential risk because it introduced this notion uh, that, at least from a, a utilitarian point of view, and that point of view has been hugely influential among within the existential risk uh, community and among long termists and so on. Um, that you know, it's really important that we colonize space and create the largest uh, population possible within our future light Um, On the assumption that these future individuals will have happy or net positive lives, then the total amount of value in the future uh, could be literally astronomical. And so this notion of astronomical waste is that you know, every hour, every minute, every second of delayed space colonization results in all sorts of cosmic resources Hundreds Uh, of
0: trillions of non-existing humans would not come to be. I think that's kind of what I remember. Like every second we delay that project, that means that a hundred million, no, trillion, apologize. Hundreds of trillions of humans in that specific future of having populated the entire cluster of our galaxy or the entire cluster of, of our stars, star cluster. Mm-hmm. Uh, would fail to materialize to existence. And yeah. therefore the total output of value, positive moral value that he says would not be optimized to its maximum or optimum level of uh, possible achievement. And therefore we have to hurry up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's exactly
1: right. Um, So ultimately then combining those existential risk is, is, you know, I think so. the, the way I often describe it, um, is that, you know, existential risk is, is commonly defined now as just any event that will prevent us from fulfilling our long-term potential in the universe. What is long-term potential? Well, that is spelled out in transhumanist space expansionist and kind of utilitarian terms. So we, we have this obligation to, uh, you know to ultimately become uh, post human you know to leave behind the human condition and replace it with this new and better post human condition then to uh, spread throughout the, the universe uh, as much as possible as quickly as we can in order to this gets at the utilitarian aspect to maximize value you know to create as much you know if, if you if you understand value is happiness to create as much happiness as possible uh, within the universe as a whole and so yeah. So any and, and you know how do we do that? Well, Bostrom you know, in twenty thirteen introduces introduces this notion of uh, technological maturity, which is is this ultimate goal that we should aim for, um, which is valuable not intrinsically but instrumentally, and because if we attain the technological maturity, then we'll be in a position to uh, to you know really ensure that we colonize the entire universe, yeah. become post human, maximize value, and so on. And so ultimately technological maturity is about subjugating nature and maximizing economic productivity. That's Those are more or less the terms that he uh, uses to articulate the idea.
0: And I hope our audience are able to see how our sort of original digression about eschatology and teleology is actually closing the loop here because this to me, in my ignorance perhaps, Sounds extremely eschatological and teleological and kind of almost ridiculously subjective, Uh, if not insulting, to be honest with you, from a philosophical point of view. Now you can say, you can throw it right in my face and say, look, man, you have always had a contrarian bias. That's why you were called Socrates in the army, because you have issues with authority, since the problems with your father and going back into my background and this and that, and that will kind of be true, but but at the same time, looking at the universe where you have evolution and the cosmos, loving the way I understand it, and loving is not the right word, but creating the space for diversity. Mm -hmm. and lack of a unified direction, but like evolution throws everything at the wall, some things stick, some things don't, and usually many things stick and many things don't, but it's kind of like an expanding sphere of possibilities and and options, whereas, so so that's like almost an infinite sphere of directions and possible uh, purposes and fulfillments and teleologies, and yet there comes Bostrom and says, Here's the vector that is the ultimate vector of fulfillment for our uh, star cluster. Mm -hmm. And that vector has to do, again, closing the loop with eugenics, maximizing intelligence and birth rates for the highest uh, beings that we can possibly create or design or engineer, populating everything that we know of in the entire universe that we can reach Mm -hmm. at least in the visible light cone or whatever. (laughs) So I hope here we, we have like a nice loop where it all kinds of starts coming together a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, even more since you can
1: presumably fit more simulated beings per volumetric unit of space, uh, uh, than you can, you know, biological beings. And furthermore, since space colonization is probably, at least interstellar colonization is probably impossible for biological beings. You probably need to be a digital being. Yeah. This future that's envisioned is one that's just completely populated by digital consciousnesses. And, you know, ultimately, I I, I think this is a like a deeply impoverished view of the future. I mean, tying into this notion of, of diversity, uh, it's I a mean, single I
0: narrative. It, it brings all that we are, all yeah. of our humanity, diversity, richness, multiplicity. That's why I often say that multiplicity is better than a singularity. And unfortunately, it took me like many years to get to that point. But this is again, a kind of a singular vision of a future, a singular vector towards a singular outcome, eschatological, which is to say religious. In character and fulfillment, and not really up for debate or discussion, or with any alternatives, unless you're a dumbass, unintelligent, non-transhumanist, unenlightened meatbag, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's it's interesting that
1: uh, some long-termists recently have started arguing that you know uh, what we what humanity as a whole. Should do is pursue a two-step plan. The first is to reach a state of existential security. So that just means focusing on mitigating existential risks. So dealing with the the potential danger of artificial superintelligence, uh, of engineered pandemics, climate change. Well, maybe climate change, um, and you know some other risks. And then once we get there, we can have this multi-century or even multi-millennium period they call the long reflection. And that's when we sit back and. Try to figure out what, as a whole, uh, what values we want to guide the next trillions of years, of you know future human evolution, and so that sounds pretty like open, and like you know that the the whole idea is that we get we we you know join hands and sort of have a debate about what the best values are, but really if you if you sort of look just a little bit closer at the literature, there are a several pretty non-negotiable aspects of what this the future ought to involve and those specifically those are kind of the three uh features that i was that i listed before which is transhumanism you know like toby his 2020 book the precipice says that it's very likely the case that if we do not transcend uh the human realm then we will lose out on a significant fraction of our potential, so okay so so that's pretty it it's not categorical language, but it's like almost certainly we need to uh to become post human same with space colonization it's like it's just not really an option you know that for us to just remain on earth um, and to never you know spread throughout space, create these huge planet sized computers. Run simulations in which trillions and trillions of people, uh, happy people, supposedly happy people exist, and thereby maximize value. That's just kind of, that's just, I mean, I think it's just widely seen as a more or less guaranteed way to fail to fulfill our long-term potential in the universe. So ultimately what you get is this kind of rigid framework uh, where, you know, they're saying like, oh, there's all sorts of wiggle room. Yeah, but it's a wiggle room around this skeleton, you know, which is transhumanism, space colonization, and utilitarianism. Um, that is more or less non-negotiable, not up for debate. So you're debating within a framework, and so that that's you know one problem I have with it. And uh, to just restate uh, what I was saying before, I mean, I think that what I think the the reason I think this future is impoverished is because of this rigid framework, because they're not willing to you know, consider alternatives other than transhumanism, space colonization, uh, and, and just maximizing value, which maybe is just the completely wrong way of thinking about value. <laughs> you know, There are other possible responses to value, which are not just maximization. It's a very capitalistic notion. And I don't think it's a coincidence that, trans, that um, utilitarianism emerged concomitantly with capitalism. You know, and, there's just so many similarities between the two,
0: right? And and there's other things that bother me with that is the sort of the mathematical mathematization of value too, like the way he measures it and the way he calculates it with like, you know, honestly, I'm I'm very far from math whiz, but to me, uh, you know, putting numbers like ten to the forty-six or ten to the forty-eighth of of humans, like all these math calculations are at the very least up to contestation, and I mean high contestation, if not completely a a guess masquerading as science, really, honestly. I I think that's the best guess of a couple of people maybe masquerading as mathematics and science, which makes it even worse in a way, right? So you're trying to, to objectify and to make non debatable the value measure of of the entire universe and make a one for all kind of an reach a one for all kind of an outcome and you know support that with debatable at least if not entirely manufactured math it's really concerning and kind of insulting and and highly authoritarian and and constrict <laughs> all mm-hmm. to me like so it really bothers me I have to admit like it I really struggle with it and that's by the way one of the reasons why so let me just come out right clear here and, and share some of my other biases that I have uh, with Bostrom per se is the fact that you know he's been the person that I've chased the most to come on my podcast now let's be clear. He does not owe me anything. He does not owe me an interview. He does not owe his time to me or anyone else. However, if you promise that you would do something, and if we book a date, and if we book a time, and if you say that you would do it, you know, I take your word for it. And then if you cancel in the last moment and tell me that we will do it again, and we reschedule, and then you cancel again, and then you refuse to do a specific date. And every year for 10 years, you tell me, please ask me again next year. This year, I'm very busy. Please ask me again next year. And for 10 years, maybe 12 years, I patiently keep asking and you keep refusing to me. uh, And that's only, I'm not even going to mention some of the other stuff, but that, that to me is like, you know, I try to stand by my word. I try to live my message. I'm an imperfect being. I often fail to measure up to my own expectations, um, and that's just the flawed person that I am. But but I do honestly try to fulfill what I say that I would do, and and when I fail to do, at least I apologize and I clean up, and I try to avoid false expectations and false promises. And to me, as a Socratic, uh, as and as an ethicist in the ancient kind of simple uh, worlds of Greece and Rome where one of the most important thing of a philosopher was to live their message. That minor issue is a big issue, you know? Not living your message, not staying by your word, not not being who you say you are. And then when you have like the, the fact that maybe you're like, at least at some point, believing that, you know, whites are smarter than blacks and there's all kinds of arbitrary math and all kinds of you know, arbitrary fulfillment of the universe and all kinds of other things piling on top of that, on top of that, it's like bad news after bad news after bad news. And I don't want to go after Bostrom here. That wasn't my intention, but I'm just sharing my my own personal biases so that other people can first judge them for what they are and maybe dismiss them as my personal biases, but maybe dig into it deeper themselves and then judge Based on his writings and his evidence as they stand and, and his papers.
1: That's that's really interesting. I mean, it, it doesn't um I mean it comports with sort of other uh, things that I've I've heard. The, so I I've met Bostrom twice. And the first time was just very brief. The second time uh was at a conference on AI. And I went up, introduced myself, uh, and you know, and then asked him a question, and he said, which is uh, uh you know it was perfectly fine he said like i'm not sure I understand, could you say it again so i I tried to elaborate a little bit more, and I was probably uh two sentences in when it was one of the strangest experiences i've had. He uh was looking at me, and then he just walked away <laughs> and it was I was in the middle of, of talking, so that also just kind of like I don't know that was just odd. That's you know
0: I think that's another thing by the way that I've noticed in his communication and in other situations, and that's like yeah. looking down a bit, if I may say it. And I don't know how to say it any better or any lighter. But but one thing that I loved about Kurzweil is that I spent three hours in his office and had to rearrange his entire furniture to make the interview happen and everything. And he was the nicest, the most humblest, the most easiest person to work with, even though I messed up, I made mistakes. I was like, there were issues. And yet he came in through as as an amazing human being. Forget about Mm -hmm. him as an inventor, as a futurist, right? Bostrom to me has come is exactly the opposite, unfortunately, from my limited communication and, and stuff. Uh, and, and that's very disappointing because philosophers are supposed to be better. That's what philosophy in its core, the way I understand it, should be about. It's about, if, especially if you're talking about the improvement of the species as the greatest project of your life, your academic career and freaking universe, why don't we start with ourselves? And one measure in my books, and maybe not in his book, is being humble. And <laughs> anyway, I'll, I'll shut up. <laughs> yeah, that's. I don't want to turn this as a rant against Bostrom because that's not how it was intended. But it's just like many years of, of frustration and disappointments. Uh, and, and lack of any being even impressed by his, quote, academic work. You know, I've, I've done two interviews with his one of his best colleagues, Anders Sandberg, and my impression of him is entirely the opposite. Mm-hmm. Uh, Anders Sundberg is a super nice guy, super friendly, super happy, pretty smart, enjoyable to have a conversation with. Even if you agree or disagree, I just love the guy. Right. A- and their best colleagues. And, and you know, Amber said some, Andrew said some very nice thing about Bostrom during the interview and said like, oh, we all accept and understand that Nick is the smartest kid in the block or in the uh, department or so- to something to that effect. I have to go back to the interview, but, you know, it's kind of like intellectual bow to to Nick's prowess. But I was thinking... <sighs> You must see something better than me, because I'm <laughs> struggling to see this, what you're referring to here, and maybe it's just my own lack of uh, intelligence. That that was kind of my conclusion, to be honest with you. So I was like, I probably have 20, 30 points down from Anders un, Sandberg. So that's why I just failed to, to reach the level where Bostrom's accomplishments are impressive to my limited intelligence.
1: that's so Um, funny
0: (laughs) yeah where do we go from here okay we go back to existential risk perhaps so let's talk about long-termism and existential risk right Mm -hmm. because that's the next issue that's connected here and again it all is like sort of gravitating around the same gravitational well around which transhumanism, existential risk, and long-termism all gravitate around. Oh, excuse me, before that, though, let's touch a bit on utilitarianism, because as a philosopher, that also bothers me. Mm-hmm. You know, one of my also other favorite philosophers, are uh, living philosopher, is Peter Singer. Mm-hmm. And two things. First is... When I had him on my podcast, he said he had no issue with transhumanism. But I think after my podcast, there was an article I saw with him where he was criticizing long-termism, saying that it could be used to uh, justify um, almost anything at almost any cost. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I was thinking, yeah, this kind of what people refer to utilitarianism in Bostrom is really a crude utilitarianism. It's almost insulting utilitarianism. It's very rigid and and sort of narcissistic. And I'm happy to elaborate later on that. But I mean, let's let's just throw it in here. If you want, if you think that the ultim that the universe's ultimate fulfillment is ten to the forty eight more more of you, I would call that selfish and narcissistically pathological to the 10th to the 48th degree in my books. But again, who the heck am I? My intelligence is not Bostrom's and I haven't been you know, Sweden's highest, uh, what is it, highest academic. I was reading his biography before our interview and he said he broke Sweden's national record of intelligence. Yeah, of... There's, there's, no,
1: there's no evidence of that.
0: But that's that, what that's... he said in his bio. Yeah. I was reading it and that's another it's... thing which bothered me. I was like, why people say stuff like that about themselves? Like what kind of a person you have to be to try to say that I broke the record of Sweden's national intelligence measure, however accurate that is. But if if it is. Anyway, so 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 utilitarianism is not as bad and as rigid. And Peter Singer, as a utilitarian philosopher of great renown, has pointed that. Right? And so all I want to say is that Bostrom's measure of utilitarianism is not necessarily accepted by utilitarian philosophers, and maybe even is kind of simplifying and crudifying what good utilitarianism is. And then again, as someone who grew up in communism, I'm always kind of a little bit pushed back against utilitarianism because there has to be some limit where mm-hmm. you have a realm of individual free, freedom and choice. Um, And so that kind of a 10 to the 48th maximization of procreation of more of me into the universe. Yeah. That's what I mean by narcissism and selfish. (laughs) Okay. Okay. This time it should be over, but this will be hopefully interesting and kind of engaging for people. And I mean, it's, I didn't plan any of this, but it's kind of like pouring out of me because I've been sort of mulling these issues for a long time in the background. I, I. and they haven't even come out before because I wanted to discuss it with him. This is how I always prefer to do it. I prefer Mm -hmm. to do it face to face so that I give the person the chance to respond because I'm a human, less intelligent than him, never broke any records. Maybe he can show me where I'm wrong, right? But anyway, we just just to
1: be clear, we don't know if he broke any records. That's what he says. But there, there, there's a, a, a Swedish philosopher named Simon Knudsen who um, contacted Bostrom about this claim because he said, I live in Sweden, I grew up here, uh, I've, there's, there's, I've never heard of any kind of like uh, record keeping about, I think it was that he had, Bostrom had, um, had, you know, taken, had enrolled in like multiple uh, programs simultaneously and so it was it was like you know he earned the most degrees or something like as a as a young person over a certain period of time but yeah i mean there's there's no and it's so that makes it even weirder because it is odd when you see um a a grown uh scholar mentioning undergrad level achievements um i mean if you if you so yeah i mean there there were a number of of accomplishments when i was undergrad that were pretty noteworthy at, at my university, University of Maryland. It would just be odd to include those um, in, in a kind of boastful, vaunting manner on my CV. And then furthermore, if someone were to, to dig in to those claims that I might make on my CV and find that actually there's really no, there's it's totally unofficial. It's just, it's just this individual's guess uh, about their their you know academic performance. That just makes it even weirder, so but I think that it, it is kind of um an interesting window bit into I think kind of the way bostrom what he thinks of himself and you know uh, it, yeah it, it's just an interesting bit of evidence um,
0: you know, I had a bias towards intelligence when I was eighteen years old or nineteen years old. I finished from the best high school in Bulgaria the high school, which gave birth to, or or was the, the intellectual cradle for, you know, prime ministers and presidents for a very long time, whatever. So I end up going, in, I'm conscripted in the army, and in the army, I discovered that that doesn't make any shit of a difference. Mm-hmm. Uh, because you can be a very smart bastard, shrinking away from duty, trying to Uh, you know, minimize your engagement and create the most safety for your own skin while not doing any of the work, any of your proper share of work that you're supposed to do as a soldier. And so, in other words, you're using your intelligence towards, you know, poor ends or selfish ends, ends which may actually put at risk the whole platoon or the whole unit. And then you have those poor guys who probably... You know, I was sent. I up too much, so I was sent in a punishment unit for three months. I spent before that two weeks in um, in isolation. Um, Anyway, had problems with my commanding officer uh, because he told me I'm a piece of garbage in front of everybody, and I told him the opposite. Off. Anyway, (laughs) not not a very smart strategy. Which is when I got the name Socrates because. People asking questions in the army is not a very smart strategy for survival. And being a Socrates is not a compliment. It's kind of an insult. Mm -hmm. Uh, Right. And there's a price to be paid for that. But anyway, one of the things that I discovered as a result of that was that you can have the most uneducated and dumb people, if you will. And I say that in a non-insulting way, dumb in the way we traditionally measure intelligence. And yet they're very solid, good people who stand their ground, who are good friends, who are reliable, and who would take a bullet for you or for their friends or or to do their job. And then you have those, you know, people coming from all kinds of amazing intellectual backgrounds who can do all kinds of math or science or what have you, and then they're acting as total bastards and, and selfishly put at risk the whole unit for small personal benefits, right? And so that's the moment where I stopped worshipping intelligence and started, you know, respecting more things like integrity, right? Mm -hmm. Integrity is doing what you say that you would do the way that you say you will do it. Something which in my book, Bostrom, lacks integrity. And that to me is more valuable than intelligence. But anyway, that's, again, my own personal biases here. Yeah, I'm also just not even
1: clear what intelligence means. But you no know, one is. That's yeah. the thing. I mean, there's so many different flavors of intelligence in, in scare quotes. I just don't yeah, I mean to, to particularly like in the kind of the effective altruist, long-termist and so on community. Um as we've said, I mean intelligence is matters a lot to these people. And you know, um uh, Carla Kramer has pointed out in some critiques of EA that oftentimes, you know, people will describe each other in terms of you know like this person's really smart uh or less smart or something like that um i've been told that some in the rationalist community around the, the bay area uh would introduce themselves with their name followed by a number and the number is their iq and yeah. so that's just how they they introduce themselves and so but that number like the number is is to honestly it's virtually meaningless to me and if if they actually um, and if it has any meaning,
0: I... I apologize to interrupt. But if it has any meaning to me, it's detrimental because it has you. Ha- it shows me you have a complex that that you t- that you have to stand like a sort of a narcissistic complex, if you will, so that yeah. you kind of immediately want to distinguish yourself and and make yourself special. And and that kind of need tells me a lot about your psychology and your background and maybe even some other issues deeper than that.
1: Yeah, I think th- there's um, something to be said about the psychology of obsession with IQ and intelligence. Um, but yeah, ultimately, I just don't know what what intelligence is. I mean, there, there are athletes who are, I mean, I would describe them as brilliant kinesthetically. I mean, they're, they can just do things that few humans can do. Um, am I more or less intelligent than these individuals? I don't know. It's just impossible to say. I mean, it's, it's kind of just a meaningless question. So yeah, for me, I, I think you're right that when I see people occasionally, um, actually, this is true. When I lived in um, Cambridge, Massachusetts, because I was, I was a visiting student at Harvard and I also um, was a neuroscience student at Brandeis University, which is very close to Boston. And so when I was in Cambridge, Massachusetts, um, they, you know, it's not that uncommon for people to have a vanity license plate which is IQ and then a number. Wow. <laughs> you know? And so so wow. I, I agree that this sort of like obsession with like my IQ and, you know, joining Mensa and whatever is just
0: really, you know, it's really weird. But you can see how the next step of presumption in that kind of a twisted logic is to presume that the universe wants to maximize that. Yeah. Right. So if you're maximizing for your IQ to the point where you th- you got to put it on your license plate or you got to put it on your bio that you broke the, the national record or whatever, yeah. then you can see how the next step may be that the universe wants to maximize that. And of course, the logical outcome of that is that, oh, the universe wants more of me. How much more? 10 to the 48th, of course. And <laughs> if you don't believe me, you don't understand math and you don't understand the universe and you're a dumbass meatbag, you know? <laughs> I I get it. I broke the records kind of thing. And and then I'm like, okay, we we're clear now who who stands where. Right. And I think that's almost like conclusive enough for any observer to make up their own mind. Right? So yep. in the army I discovered that I want to be a friend to that dumbass meatbag who has integrity and who has friendship and loyalty and not to the accomplished intellectual who is a bastard and is going to stab your back in your back, right? That's what I discovered. Um, So anyway, uh, okay, so time to talk about long-termism. What is it and what's the problem with it? And I want to set this up with uh, a quote because um, I mentioned some of your work on my Facebook page. And um, I had a couple of people comment, so one of them was Ryan O'Shea and I hope he forgives me that um, I'm going to quote him, but I actually took a screenshot of his comment and and he said, I basically shared one of your articles and he said something like this. A few points in response. Long-termism is a necessary and ethical approach to decision making. While it is important to address pressing issues in the present, we also have a moral obligation to consider the well-being of future generations. Long-termism recognizes this obligation and urges us to act accordingly, which is essential to creating a sustainable and equitable future. Long-termism does not neglect urgent problems. Long-termism does not imply neglecting current issues, but rather finding solutions that address both current and future problems. For example, investing in renewable energy not only addresses current climate issues, but also reduces the likelihood of future climate catastrophes. Long-termism does not deprioritize the needs of the present. It recognizes the importance of meeting the needs of the present, but also recognizes that those needs cannot come at the expense of future generations, and so on and so on. And so uh, long-termism does not necessarily lead to a dystopian future, does not dictate a specific future, etc. All reasonable things. Mm -hmm. What's the problem with this? I think some of it is wrong.
1: And I think it also plays on, um, it it fails to acknowledge in ambiguity with the term long-termism. So there's a moderate and a radical interpretation. And the moderate version simply says that ensuring the long-term future of humanity goes well is a key priority, moral priority of our time. And the radical version, which long-termists themselves would describe as the strong version, uh, radical just just, uh, makes a bit more sense. To me, it's you know, um, so it's just a terminological difference. So the radical version says that ensuring that things go well in the long term is the key moral priority, and so it, it seems like on the one hand he is um, he's discussing the implications of moderate long termism, and so one problem with that is a lot of the many of the leading long termists themselves. While presenting a moderate version to the public uh, in the technical literature or in you know, interviews with, uh, for example, journalists uh, at Fox, will say that they are most sympathetic with or endorse the radical version. And the radical version does imply that if there are contemporary problems, that uh, the if solving contemporary problems or addressing contemporary problems... Um, does not in some way positively influence the very long-run future of humanity, thousands, millions, billions, and trillions of years in the future, then it should not be prioritized. So yeah, on this strong long-termist view, if there is a problem, a challenge, an issue that uh, isn't going to affect the very long-run future of humanity, or it doesn't seem to have a particularly high probability then it should be deprioritized on the radical long termist view uh, long termists themselves have been more or less explicit about this so for example, in an interview uh Hillary graves uh, who's you know one of the more prominent long termists out there says that from a long termist view uh so she says sorry I'll, I'll I'll say it again from a the traditional philanthropical uh, philanthropic perspective um It seems there seems to be a very good case that wealth should be transferred from wealthy individuals in the global north to people who need the money more in the global south. But from a long-termist perspective, she says there seems to be a much better use of our finite resources, and that is mitigating extinction risk. And so, in other words, you know we have finite resources. How do we allocate them? Well, on the one hand, we could you know mitigate Extinction risk, maybe even like really improbable extinction risk from artificial superintelligence. Maybe, maybe there's even some concerns about like we're living in a computer simulation or something gets shut down. Um, those should be prioritized over alleviating global poverty, because while everybody would acknowledge global poverty is very bad, it's it, if you take a grand cosmic perspective on things, it's just not that. Big. It's just not going to influence the very far future. Um, You know, Bostrom in a number of papers describes these sorts of problems as a, perhaps a giant massacre for man, a small misstep for mankind. You know, elsewhere he, you know, in discussing like world war, the the two world wars, the AIDS epidemic, uh, and so on and so on. These are, quote, mere ripples on the great sea of life because they haven't really affected the total amount of happiness that will Exist in the in the universe. If you take this grand cosmic perspective, and you imagine these ten to the fifty eight people living in you know fast computer simulations in the far future, and so this this sort of this radical or strong version of long termism, that is what a lot of the long termists themselves have explicitly defended in the scholarly literature. There are some journalists uh, who have, I think, aptly described moderate long termism. As essentially a gateway drug to the, the radical version, and it's the radical version that Peter Singer critiques in yeah. the, the article that you had mentioned. You know, and and he's echoing claims that I've made as well. That when you have this particular perspective on humanity, um, there are two problems, two, two dangers. I think one is the trivialization or the minimization of contemporary problems that are deemed to be sub-existential or non-existential. Right? So global poverty is just not an existential risk. Therefore, since, you know, existential risks are like they are just this qualitatively unique category. You know, they matter way more than a global catastrophe that would just result <clears throat> would just result in say like 99% of humanity dying out rather than 100%. Um existential risk is just it matters more than anything else. Consequently, you just you know, individuals who accept this worldview are just going to naturally be inclined then to kind of shrug off risks that or you know catastrophes that um are are you know don't threaten the entire future of humanity, don't threaten to permanently and drastically curtail the realization of our long-term potential, you know, over the next ten to the hundred years or whenever uh, that's when the heat death is, is supposed to happen. So that's one issue, and the other is what Singer makes explicit, which is that if you imagine this you know throughout history, there have been all of these you know movements that have been embraced a kind of utopian vision of the future and when you imagine wh- when you 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 see hovering on the temporal horizon a utopian world, and then notice that there are a bunch of people in between where you are and utopias. <laughs> and they're blocking your access to utopia, you may very well feel justified, morally justified, in engaging extreme actions to push aside those individuals. Maybe that means violence. Maybe that means genocide. There have been lots of genocides that have been justified in the minds of true believers by this kind of utopian vision of the the future. And that's exactly what you get with radical long-termism. So really, it, it was around like, maybe twenty seventeen, twenty eighteen, when I really started reading in detail the uh literature on apocalyptic terrorism. And it just like really struck me that the the ideas uh or commitments that oftentimes were at the core of so many of these apocalyptic utopian movements, uh and that enable these these, you know, justified uh so far as they're individuals were were concerned, uh, justified extreme actions, those very same ingredients are right there at the the center of radical long-termism. So I also worry that not only could radical long-termism lead people to minimize things like climate change, uh, which over and over again, long-termists have said is almost certainly not a direct existential threat, but also could lead the right individual, so to speak, who finds themselves in the right moment to say, "I'm really sorry, but I'm going to have to engage in some kind of extreme action." Um, so uh, I think the
0: end justifies the means. Exactly, and and you if might. If my end say... is the ultimate fulfillment of the universe, who are you, yeah. asshole, to stop me from it? I'm just gonna, you know. Exterminate your ass! <laughs> yeah, I mean the stakes here could
1: not be greater. We're talking about astronomical amounts of value in the future. We're talking about like whether galaxies remain uh, lifeless and uh, going back to Kurzweil, sort of asleep, you know, or if they if these galaxies wake up if we're able to get there, redesign them, create value structures, which is another term for people because um, people are means to an end, you know we're just these structures that produce value, and so what whether or not the galaxies end up in one state or the other um is you know y- you know if if somebody's standing in the way of that, then you might very well feel justified in in eliminating them, so that is a real danger. With, with this ideology. And there there are a lot, you know, Sayer himself says in this article that it's not the case that there are long-termists out there right now who are calling for extreme violence, although I put an asterisk on that. But it's rather that the ideology it's, itself contains these ingredients. The ideology is dangerous. And so therefore, this the propagation of this ideology is cause for concern, which is, in, in, the, in my critiques of long-termism, I'm not saying that there are long-termists out there that we should be worried about. I'm saying that the the ideology itself contains the seeds that could very well lead to to violence. And history attests to this. This is not just me being hyperbolic. There are so many examples of this. And the asterisk I I would want to add, uh, the asterisk that I added just a moment ago is that there are hints uh, within the effective altruist or long-termist community uh, or rationalist community as well of individuals who are starting to take seriously the possibility of violence. So Yudkowsky himself has said we should risk, you know, even an all-out nuclear war, so long as some people would survive to prevent the AI apocalypse. Um, There was a a meeting minutes from um, an AI safety workshop that was held in Berkeley uh, that were leaked to me. And and there were, uh, on two occasions in these meeting minutes, People suggested that maybe one way to slow down progress in AI uh, so that the value alignment problem could be solved is to, quote, become Kaczynski.
0: Yeah, Unabomber again. A Unabomber
1: copycat. Yeah. So already we are, you know, when I wrote my first critique of radical long termism back in 2021, that's when it was was published. uh, And I suggested that, like, maybe this ideology could be really dangerous. Uh, it could give people a warrant, a license, to engage in extreme activities, perhaps uh, violent ones. There really wasn't any trace. I mean, this was a hypothetical um, argument based on the historical record, my my study of apocalyptic terrorism, and then just sort of like an understanding, a deep understanding of the long-termist ideology itself. Now, fast forward two years, there are actually individuals in the community who are kind of saying what I... You know what? What I wrote back in the day might be said by some of these people. So more Can than ever, f- I'm convinced that it, it could be dangerous. Sorry, sir. Sorry no, no, no.
0: it's great. It's great. And if if it's if it's like people like Yudkovsky, for example, uh, who have quite a sway in certain parts of the community, uh, and you keep shouting, "Oh, we're all going to die! We're all going to die!" Um, And and by the way, it reminds me greatly to Zoltan Istvan's The Transhumanist Wager. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I was one of the first, maybe the first interviews that he did after the book came out. And I told him, you know, I'm a transhumanist. I was considering myself a transhumanist at that time. And I told him, I would have been with you until the very last moment of the so-called transhumanist revolution. And I would have kind of resigned and stepped back at your parade. Because at the end of his book, what he does is basically takes over the world, totalitarian transhumanism, if you will, shoots looters on the on the spot uh, without any uh, judgment, uh, like proper, you know, judicial process, but like basically executes people on the spot with robots or what have you. It's like a totalitarian transhumanist takeover, if you will, Uh, Extinguishes democracy, self-governance, you know, personal freedoms, judicial process, all of these things. Um, And and that's the end of the transhumanist wager, right? Which was written now, maybe, I don't know, 10 years ago, something like that. But, but of course, Zoltan is the founder of the U.S. Transhumanist Party and a very notable, uh, media-friendly, popular... Highly followed transhumanist. Now you would say that's a, that's a fiction, uh, or it's a novel. It's a science fiction novel, sure. But but you know, as Greg Bear said to me one, uh, you know, science fiction is like the the sugar coated pill. You know, it smuggles all kinds of messages by sugar coating it as a science fiction. And so we have to be aware that very much uh, mm-hmm. because at one level or another, it starts influencing our decisions and about how we perceive the options that we have and what's possible, what's not possible, what's permissible and what's not permissible. So, yeah, so there are those those streams in the transhumanist community for sure, unfortunately, which is one among many reasons. So I hope why now many people would see why I stopped calling myself a transhumanist maybe five six seven years ago, or something like that I've forgotten uh, but unfortunately, I know time is advancing here, so while I'm enjoying this greatly, regrettably, I know you'll have to go soon so let's see how we can wrap this conversation in the last with the last couple of questions so so first is perhaps. What's the best place for people to find more about you and your work? So I have a website.
1: Uh, it's xrisk, xriskology.com. Uh, and my Twitter handle is the, is the same. And I, I am a, a somewhat prolific, for better or for worse, t- uh, tweeter. So so that that's a, a good place to follow my work and, and sort of keep updated with things that I'm publishing and so on
0: okay great uh let's I'll take the liberty here to 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 throw in a couple of quick ones which are very hard because they're quick and they're not quick really so because I've asked this question many people and I'm always kind of shocked if you were to give me the top three highest existential risks that we are facing today as a civilization as someone who is studying the field what would be the top three ones in priority of like danger or probability or however you want to rank them?
1: Yeah, it's, oh, it's, a, it's a great question. I mean, I do think that the possibility of designer pathogens is super scary. Um, it's, it doesn't get as much attention as AI right now or climate change, but I mean, it's, it is a monster that is crouched along the road. So genetically uh, okay.
0: engineered pandemic. Okay, that's yes. one. What's the second yeah.
1: one? I think climate change, because that is you know I've called it back in 2017. Um, a but that's only a mere risk. ripple. Come on, uh, yeah, I know. But I mean, it's it's a it's a frame risk. You know, it's a it's a it's a risk predicament that frames you know the entire human situation here on Earth. And yeah, it's it's just not only is going to cause just tremendous. Uh, untold human suffering, but it's just going to increase. I mean, you know, uh, both government officials and climate scientists would call it a threat multiplier and a threat intensifier.
0: So I completely agree with you. What's number
1: three? I would say AI, but there'd be a lot of qualifications to it. The thing I I would say underlying all of this is what Luke Kemp, a researcher at Cambridge, calls agents of doom. And these are the generators, the enablers, and the drivers of underlying risk. And they include uh, big tech. So open AI would be an agent of doom. Um, It includes fossil fuel companies and then military industrial complexes. And I feel like those, that cluster of doom agents, they they constitute, there's there's sort of another gestalt here, another way of, of looking at it, they constitute the number one Maybe you could say the top three threats that we face, if we don't get a handle on these military industrial complexes, big tech, fossil fuel companies, et cetera, then I think our collective existential predicament uh, in the universe is a bit dismal.
0: Okay, let me share my take for a second and you tell me where I'm wrong. My take is that the the greatest danger to our civilization is humanity. We know, historically speaking, there's only one Terminator species, and it's not the one from the movies. It is us, because we know that when we show places, North America, Australia, species start disappearing. That's the historical record. It's not up for debate. We are in the midst of the sixth extinction, the Anthropocene. We know we're the cause of that, just like we're the cause of climate change, just like we're the cause of soil erosion, ocean acidification, um, AI, we are the cause of AI, by the way, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. So I would say the greatest in my priority of, of existential risk, humanity, we are the enemy. We, we are the enemy. We, and, and, and exactly in this predicament, the fact that our ever more growing, because all of those issues are not different issues, they're the same exact issue, which is our ever more powerful exponential prowess to use science and technology far outpaces our wisdom to apply that in a wise, non-destructive and non-suicidal manner so I would say the the greatest existential risk to humanity is our own lack of wisdom and that's why I believe ethics is one of the way to, to, to maybe close the gap because the more powerful we get, because many transhumanists, that's another thing many transhumanists say, okay, we need stronger technology, more powerful AI, more powerful genetic engineering to to be able to do what we need to do. And I say, no, that's only going to make things worse because it's only going to make the gap between our power and our ability to control our own power bigger, not smaller. And the problem is therefore going to grow, not shrink. And so that's kind of like the gist of my, my take on the existential risk. Where am I wrong? I don't think you're wrong. Um, I mean, I, I would take
1: issue to some extent with this notion of um, wisdom versus technology, but I do think that that would lead us into a longer discussion. Yeah. But but I'm very much in agreement that you know there there's you know kind of a one to one correlation almost between the development of technology and the direness of our existential situation. More technology means we're less existentially secure. you know. And so it's, it's theoretically possible that we develop more technologies and that trend reverses. But I don't see any good reason for that being the case. And so I, I, do, I do feel really quite pessimistic. I mean, even pe- people, it's, it's a bit confusing. Even in the long-termist literature, people like Toby Ord, um, have said that without this kind of boost in wisdom, how do we get that? Maybe we need to re-engineer the human organism or something like that. Maybe we need the long reflection. But without this boost in human wisdom, every century moving forward, the, the the risk will increase. So he himself acknowledges that, you know, I mean, everybody acknowledges that technology is, is uh the overwhelming source of uh existential risk. And so from my perspective, it's it seems like a really I I don't I don't really see a good way out of this conundrum. We're going to develop more technology. There's lots to say about that. Some of it has to do with capitalism and you know and agents of doom and how those two two things interact. Um, but we're going to continue to develop these technologies. Um, At another side note, even though lots and lots of surveys suggest that. Many people, maybe a majority of people, don't want some of these technologies developed. There was a Monmouth, um, Monmouth, uh, excuse me, I mispronounced it, a poll out just, I think, in February that found like a majority of people don't want open AI to develop these chatbots. But they're going to do that anyways because uh, they you know see dollar signs hovering on the horizon. Uh, so anyways, we can keep developing these technologies. I think the existential situation is going to become more dire, it's going to place the uh, power to unilaterally wreak civilizational havoc in the hands of more and more people. And so ultimately, I'm very pessimistic. A a number of interviews have asked me, like, you know, what would you say to the younger generations to give them hope? And I'm just like, I don't know. I really wish, I desperately wish I had something uh, to tell them that was hopeful. But, like, I'm looking at the world and... You know, I'm a passive spectator, like the vast majority of us are, and all the trend lines just don't look good in terms, terms of ecosystem collapse, six major mass extinction event, climate change, ocean acidification, soil depletion, um, deep fakes, you know, lethal autonomous weapons, you know, and so on and so on. The, the, the list goes on uh, and on and on. And, yeah, it just, man, it just doesn't look like a, a, good, uh, a good situation. So
0: so what's the best way to wrap our conversation are you are you going to leave it at that because <laughs> i always give my the last words to my guest Uh, and I I asked them, what's the final message or what's the one thing that you want our audience to take away from this conversation with you today? And obviously, this is a conversation that will continue probably around the time of the publication of your upcoming book. I would love to dive really deep into it. But today, we had kind of a meandering conversation all over the place. I'm sorry, I probably didn't do the best job of of kind of... uh, It was fun. It was great. I I enjoyed it too. I just hope it created enough value and reward for, for our audience too, because I actually was surprised by, by some some outbursts of mine here today uh, that <laughs> I've had obviously kind of tucked away and semi-hidden, at least from me uh, for, for years, I guess. Um, so what's the best way to send us away? How do, what do you want to say to close it? <laughs> um,
1: Ah, you know, I mean, one thing that I I have said in a number of articles is, with respect to long-termism, I think it's really important that we do consider the long-term future of humanity. Um, I think we need to be a bit more humble about what we can predict and a little less dogmatic about what the future ought to look like. So that is that gestures back at this, this rigid framework of transhumanism and space expansionism and kind of maximizing value, uh, subjugating nature, maximizing economic productivity, and so on. Um, and I think caring about the long-term future of humanity does not mean that you need to be a long-termist. And I think long-termism, in its moderate form, I think it's deeply problematic in many ways, but one of which, maybe most significantly, is that it can be this kind of vehicle towards a more radical view. And I think that radical view, as Peter Singer and I have mentioned on many occasions, I think that radical view has has all the potential right there at its core to be dangerous. You know, to to give people um some kind of justification to become Ted Kaczynski.
0: <laughs> and that's to say the small scale, but but you're not thinking big enough because with a justification that you're saving uh trillions of hundreds of trillions of people per second in that future of of the universe and maximizing their happiness and future value of the universe therefore you can justify any crime really any I crime I don't
1: think that's hyperbole you know I, I think that's that's accurate it's it's a genuine concern about I mean I mean one of the risks of the future is <laughs> in my in my view long termism itself